Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minnesota Politics 101. I am Pat Kessler, the political reporter at WCCO Television. We are the CBS station in Minneapolis. Hard to believe, but uh, we are about three weeks from Election Day. There's lots of activity, lots of news, and lots of political ads. We are going to run down the latest polls and an unexpected campaign ad for a Minnesota congressional district. Now, what in the world does Colin Kaepernick and the NFL take a knee protest have to do with soybean farmers in southern Minnesota? And we'll talk Twitter. Does Twitter affect our news judgment? Do reporters who use Twitter think that stories getting traction are on Twitter are more newsworthy. I I certainly do. But we're going to talk to a columnist at the Columbia Journalism Review about that. Ball's out, picked up by the Vikings. Joseph, can he win this long foot race? Linvald Joseph, no flags, touchdown Minnesota. Okay, here's the deal. Minnesota's an NFL market. People love the Minnesota Vikings. The Wall Street Journal reports ratings this year are up about 3%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that is huge money. Uh, TV executives say the ratings are up. Remember, they were down over the last couple of years. They say they're up now because of new exciting young players, and also the controversy fading from the national anthem controversy. We remember this. Everybody was all about it. I'm I'm sure you remember Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling during the national anthem. He was protesting racial inequality and police violence against African-American men. So many other players joined the movement, you will recall, black and white, And then President Trump joined the fight and twisted it and made it into something completely different. Uh, He was urging NFL team owners to fire players who knelt during the national anthem. Uh, And he made it into the national anthem not about race inequality. But but the movement has not faded. Uh, Even so, there are far fewer protests on the field now. I don't think the Vikings have any of them this year. Uh, So it was really interesting to me that uh, President Trump uh, came to Minnesota last week and he poked the bear. Uh, He was campaigning for Republican congressional candidate Jim Hagedorn, who's running for Congress in Minnesota's first district. That covers a a, a vast west-to-east swath along the entire bottom of Minnesota, southern Minnesota. There are lots of soybean and dairy farmers, and it's generally conservative, and it's a part of the state that President Trump won by 14 points. And we are standing proudly for our national anthem. And suddenly, a couple of days later, this ad appears attacking Democratic candidate for Congress, Dan Fian, in southern Minnesota. Now, Fian served two tours of duty in Iraq, and he was awarded a Bronze Star for Valor. So he's a military guy. But this ad makes him out to be anti-military, even anti-American. 
And, and also, when you listen to this, catch the reference to Colin Kaepernick. Why does Dan Fian want to shortchange American troops? Every time the Army complains, every time the Marine Corps complains, I ask them to please stop and stop complaining. Look at who's paying him. Fian works at a liberal DC organization bankrolled by George Soros, chief financier of the global left and anti-American causes. Fian sold out to extremists, celebrating Colin Kaepernick's protests of our national anthem. Dan Fian, just another liberal sellout. NRCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. So this ad was produced by the National Republican Congressional Committee, not in coordination with the Republican candidate, Hagedorn, we talked about. Uh, but a quick fact check here. What, what Fian celebrated, according to the ad, was actually Kaepernick's right to protest. He said the right to free speech, Fian said, was a liberty that he fought for in Iraq. And he conveyed all of this on Twitter. And in and, and Minnesota, we, we discover, is not the only place that the national anthem is part of a Republican campaign. It's a strategy all across the country. Here's Georgia, Texas, and Tennessee. And I stand for our national anthem. I'm not able to stand, but I sure expect you to stand for me. I stand for our veterans, the president and the star-spangled banner. It's, uh, it's an interesting Republican strategy. Maybe it will even be successful. If you are like me, you spend a lot of time on social media, especially Twitter. I love Twitter. Uh, I'm always interested in seeing the wisdom of the crowd. I'm checking all the time. It's probably addictive. I, I acknowledge that. I, I like to see which stories are getting traction, which news goes viral. And of course, as we all know, it's President Trump's medium of choice. President Trump hit the golf course at his private club in Virginia after a busy morning on Twitter going after a few regular targets. To bypass the news media, he uses Twitter to provoke and to praise and to insult a lot of people, to celebrate. And we in the news media cover it all breathlessly. But are we, as reporters, making news judgments based on what we see on Twitter? I may be guilty of that. I think maybe something's more important or less important because of Twitter. And, and that's the topic of a really interesting article in the Columbia Journalism Review this week by Matthew Ingram. Hello. Hello, Matthew. It is Pat Kessler from WCCO Television in Minneapolis. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We'll take five to ten minutes. Great. A fascinating story in the Columbia Journalism Review, something I think about all the time. Twitter. We are on Twitter all the time. The story is titled, Do Journalists Pay Too Much Attention to Twitter? What's your view? I think they probably do. I mean, I certainly think I do. I think a lot of the journalists I follow do. Um, I think we overstate kind of the importance of Twitter sometimes. We we overestimate how important the things that we find on there are. We kind of get into maybe a filter bubble in a way because we follow other journalists and they're tweeting about something specific, and so we tend to pay more attention to that. So I'm conscious of that, um, and I hope other journalists are as well. 
Is it more of an inflated view of what the news is just because we're all talking among ourselves in an echo chamber? Or does it really reflect what people think? I think that part of the problem is that you see certain prominent people tweeting about something or responding to something. You follow that through Twitter. Other journalists are paying attention to it as well. You can wind up sort of focusing on specific aspects of stories that maybe aren't of broad interest but are of interest to journalists who happen to be on Twitter. And I think it's always worthwhile thinking about what your sort of broader audience wants to know and what they should know, and then checking that against the things that you're paying attention to because people are focusing on them on Twitter. Is, is news value different on different platforms, uh, let's say on Twitter versus Facebook versus Instagram versus radio or broadcast or newspapers? Yeah, I think they each have their own differences. Obviously, television is much more interested in imagery, moving images. Um, Instagram is a very visual-focused platform. Twitter, it's, uh, it's much more text and sometimes image-based. Facebook is very focused on video, but also things that have sort of emotional value, things that make you angry or happy or sad. Um, so each of those platforms kind of tends toward a specific type of content. One of the things that I worry about a lot is the factual, whether it's factual, what I see on Twitter, I don't know where this stuff is coming from. Uh, sometimes the fact-checking on Twitter is very difficult to do. Yeah, I think that's definitely a risk. I mean, you see things appear, um, people even when they don't mean to, even journalists, will tweet things that aren't true. They'll tweet things that they kind of, they either want to be true or they it feels true, but they haven't actually fact-checked them. Those things tend to ricochet around Twitter and then get reported, and that's a risk for sure, that, that you don't take the time to kind of do the checking that you normally would. Is our news judgment, I don't know how to say it, is it worse on Twitter than it is on other medium? I think because Twitter moves so quickly and because it's so short, um, it it has a tendency to push you towards the kind of fragmented and really fast-moving sort of news that, and that pulls you into a kind of mode where you're, you know, you're moving quickly because things are changing quickly and people are saying things and you want to, you know, you want to report them or you want to let people know that they're happening. And so maybe you don't take as much time as you should. Uh, the media, I think in general, has sped up a lot uh, with the internet and social media. And so there's a lot of pressure to get things out quickly, a lot of pressure to distribute things, to get traffic. Um, and all of that, I think, has an effect on the way we behave and, and the way we sort of react to news on the platform. Yeah, I think it really does. And, and you cite a study uh, which was very interesting to me because it said that journalists who are not on Twitter tend to have a different news judgment or dismiss information that might be newsworthy. Uh, are we starting to see that effect? Well, definitely the study mentioned that. It said that there were two sort of risks. One was that people who spend a lot of time on Twitter, journalists, 
tend to kind of overstate the importance of things they see. But the the sort of counter problem is that people who journalists who don't spend a lot of time on Twitter maybe pay less attention to things that actually are newsworthy because they come from Twitter. So there is, it feels as though there's a little bit of a rebound effect or a backlash where people are thinking, you know, I can't trust anything on Twitter or nothing newsworthy kind of occurs on Twitter, which clearly isn't the case. Yeah, it sounds like you can't win either way is what it sounds like. You know, it's like, what? So so finally, uh, to ask you this, we are in a really polarized atmosphere politically. Uh, I am a political reporter. Uh, we talk about politics on this podcast. Uh, does Twitter have an impact on what we cover in politics, particularly uh, in the Beltway in Washington, but also around the country here in Minneapolis? I mean, definitely. I don't think you can ignore, you know, the 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 commander-in-chief is sort of the Twitter troll-in-chief in a way. He tweets things at all hours of the day and night, he he seems to do it, in some cases, deliberately to get a reaction. Um, you can't just not pay attention to that, especially if it's about something important or newsworthy, so you do kind of have to pay attention to it. But I think it does encourage this kind of vicious circle where, you know, you you pay a lot of attention to it, journalists pay a lot of attention to it, that gets it more attention maybe than it deserves, and then you wind up following the response and then the response to the response. Yeah, we just go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and it just never ends. <laughs> Twitter never does. It's there forever, isn't it? Matthew, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. A fascinating article in the Columbia Journalism Review. We appreciate it. Hope we can talk again sometime. Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So here we are, just a few weeks before the midterm elections. Minnesota has some very, very big races this year. Four of the state's congressional districts are toss-ups. They're considered, they could go either way. That's very, very unusual. They could go Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican, and they could decide who actually controls Congress. So Here's the latest from the NBC News Marist poll of likely voters. It's the latest we have, and I, I think it's kind of surprising. All of the Democrats in the major races have double-digit leads. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar is leading her Republican challenger, Jim Newberger, by 30 points, 3-0, 30 points, 63% to 33%. In the other U.S. Senate race, Democrat Tina Smith is leading the Republican Karen Housley, 54% to 38%. That's a lot, too. Even in the governor's race, uh, Democrat Tim Waltz is leading Republican Jeff Johnson, 55% to 38%. Like I say, I mean, these are huge margins, kind of hard to believe, uh, but it's a poll of likely voters. It's a poll very credible. Uh, it's possible. Uh, it's possible. But I view all polls as just a, a snapshot in time and not a predictor of any election. But it is worth noting, and this is probably a really important factor here, it's worth noting, even though President Trump has been here twice in the last few months, 
uh, the president's approval rating has plummeted in the state of Minnesota. He came close to actually winning the state for the first time since 1972. He came close to winning it in 2016. Everybody was shocked by that. But right now, President Trump is underwater in the polls over and over again, every poll I've seen. His approval rating right now is at a dismal 38%. So as the president says, we'll see what happens. You've been listening to Minnesota Politics 101. It's powered by our producer, Sean Skinner. I am Pat Kessler. Thanks for listening. See you next week.